everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Art of Space Engineering. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, here to bring you the details behind what gets spacecraft into orbit and what lessons are learned along the way. So by now, I've done a few episodes related to the challenges that myself and my team faced while developing the Phoenix CubeSat at ASU, but I really haven't shared a whole lot about the earlier stages of the project and what that looked like. And really, you know, starting a CubeSat project can be one of the hardest parts of the entire development process. In addition to learning everything about spacecraft, you also have to figure out what you want your mission to be and how you need to structure your team such that there's a strong foundation to keep momentum going. If you're new to CubeSat development, these really are not the easiest questions to answer. They were not easy for us, and it took a very long time to get things right. We got a lot of things wrong before we did that. And that being said, this is a topic that I have been asked about way more than any other topic related to CubeSat projects. So today's episode is going to focus on how Phoenix got started in the first place, what things were like in the beginning, and what I would change now that I've seen the whole process from start to finish. It doesn't necessarily go into everything, but it will go into some of the key things that are important for other people to know. This episode features a Q&A session with Lyle Campbell and Andreas Portillo from the Polytechnic University of Milan in Italy. So huge thanks to these guys for allowing me to share this recording on this podcast so I can share all of this information with you very easily. Now, one thing I do want to note is that, you know, while this episode does focus on some of the things that we did right and some of the things that we did wrong to start this project, I want to note that, you know, every mission is different and unique and every team is different and unique. Although certain things worked for us, you may find something better, and that's totally fine. You know, we were by no means, you know, absolutely perfect in everything that we did. So if you're a CubeSat team and you have other methods that worked for you over the years, then please feel free to share them in a comment on our Facebook page or with me via email, and I can always do like an addendum to this episode where I just discuss all of that. Um, it would be really cool to make this a platform where a lot of those ideas can be shared through, you know, a media that's very easy for people to consume. But if you have no idea where to start with a project like this, and you have absolutely no direction, or are just interested in this topic in general, then I really hope you enjoy this episode, and that the information that's here is useful to you. And on that note, let's just get right to the good stuff and learn about how Phoenix got its start. Well, yeah, I've got a got a list of questions here for you. Then we might start with. So, I listened to your the episodes um, of the the body of knowledge set um, the CubeSat body of knowledge podcast, uh, and you talked about that the there was a professor at your university that contacted yourself and some other students about the mission. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was how Phoenix got started. Uh, Dr. Jed Bowman, who is our uh, faculty project investigator, um, he basically found out about the the grant opportunity that NASA was um, was providing for for students to pursue things like CubeSats or um, some of the other projects that were were funded, were like sounding rockets, um, and he he and a couple of other professors kind of. Um, they, they, they figured out a concept to do to study uh, the urban heat island effect with the CubeSat. And then they came to our, our student organization and uh, said, hey, we have this really great idea. 
uh, for, you know, writing a proposal to develop a CubeSat to study urban heat islands, would you be interested in designing the CubeSat part? And so we were like, yes, <laughs> definitely. If this thing could go to space, that would be awesome. And so, you know, once that happened, we were all kind of just working together to um, bas basically put the proposal together. And then once the proposal got uh, funded, then that's kind of when everything really started and, and we worked a lot more on refining things. And so when, uh, when the professor came to you, what level of detail was the concept they had in mind for the urban heat islands, like the scientific goals? Uh, so when we started off with the proposal, we started off with a science traceability matrix. Um, and so that defined things that were mostly like, uh, okay, what, what kind of ground resolution do we need? Um, you know, how, yeah, how, how large of an area do we want to examine? What um, what spectral band do we want to look at? Um, and so we had like a science team kind of working on refining that and actually putting that into a mate like a like a science traceability matrix. So that way, engineering requirements would have something to go off of. Um, and so I think they kind of worked. When we were writing the proposal, we weren't involved in making that that matrix initially. So I think they just kind of worked that offline. Um, and because we wanted to make sure that, you know, when we submitted the proposal, it was something that was going to have it. We would be able to demonstrate that a CubeSat could provide, you know, using uh, commercial off-the-shelf components, a CubeSat could provide at least like comparable resolution to a spacecraft like Landsat. Um, and so that was kind of at least more of the basis that we were trying to go for with um, defining what our requirement should be. Um, and at, at the point that we wrote the proposal, we didn't have the idea of studying urban heat islands through local climate zones specifically. So um, once we realized that the exact way that we wanted to study urban heat islands and our requirements got a little bit more refined after we had submitted the proposal and it was funded. So it was, when, we've, when we were, um, let's see, when we got handed the opportunity to develop the CubeSat for it, we had kind of like these, these baseline requirements, um, but they, so that way we could choose an appropriate attitude control system um, and figure out what kind of orbit we wanted uh, and also make sure that the, the payload that we were, were going to choose was going to be adequate for the mission. Because um, when they thought of this concept, they kind of had the idea to, to do this and also to use the FLIR specifically, um, mainly because we had, there was a graduate student at ASU who was working with it, so we would have mentorship there. Um, it was also perfect for a CubeSat form factor and you know, reasonably affordable for something like a CubeSat as well. Uh, so we were kind of trying to, so when we formulated our, our requirements, we did it, we formulated it to fit the science objective, but also made sure that, you know, it, it still worked with the floor and the floor was like the optimal payload, I guess, if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was good. Um, Cause yeah, we've, we've got, um, there's one group at our university who are researching uh, they're the geo, geoinformatics department and they have some idea about rainfall they want to monitor and yeah that's something we're looking into but just we're trying to get some idea of I guess how well 
yeah, just how well the science idea has to be developed um, before we can start looking at the technology aspect kind of it. Um, gotcha. uh, how, how did you, so the, the professor approached, you said you were with a student club and he approached the club. What was that? Yes. Yeah, that was exactly, exactly what happened. So, um, he approached the officers of the student organization and the, the student org was called the Sun Devil Satellite Lab um, or SDSL for short. And uh, Dr. Bowman had actually worked with this particular group in the past for a few other proposals. So he was already aware um, that there was a student organization that was more specifically dedicated to uh, working on projects that were a lot more related to spacecraft as opposed to rockets, because we do have a couple of other clubs at ASU that are more dedicated to rocketry. Um, sure. And so it was kind of, it was a, it was a, just a perfect fit. I was really trying to find like a decent sized group of students who were, would be interested in this kind of thing. So that way you, you know, you would have traction for running a proposal and then students who would still be around the following year to actually take the proposal somewhere. Okay. So was it the first satellite that the SSL put into space? Yeah, it wasn't the first uh so yes so phoenix was the first cubesat that sdsl um has actually put in space it's not the first cubesat that we have you know worked on a proposal for there were a few other concepts in the past the club was actually founded on an idea to develop a cubesat to study uh solar flares if i recall that correctly um so that was that was a really I think like a, a, a grounding um, motivation in wanting to pursue this project is is the club was was founded on wanting to put something into space and, and this was kind of our first opportunity to do it. So we, we really wanted to, um, you know, just kind of seize it with everything we had. Okay, yeah, that, that sounds quite similar to, yeah, our, this, this society has been founded with, yeah, the, the main idea of putting putting something in space and yeah. <laughs> But we did um, recruit a bunch of other students throughout the, the, the sure. process by just going to classes. And um, so say we were looking for people uh, to do, so SDSL is mostly comprised of like aerospace mechanical students. And when you're developing a CubeSat, a lot of that is more electrical and mechanical. We had one guy who was an electrical engineer, one guy who was a software engineer um, in the group at the time. So we had to go to, to classes and recruit students to work on the rest of the, the project. And that's how we got a lot of people throughout the uh, course of the project is just by saying, okay, this particular class would attract, um, you know, students at the junior level uh, who would have the knowledge that, that we need in order to kind of help develop the code. And so we would just go and speak in the class and then you would have, we had people email me, we set up an interview to just kind of get to know them. And then, um, you know, they got on, they came on from there. Um, and then we also did a bunch of other recruitment for the student org as well. So it was kind of a mix of both things. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. That, that was, that was my next question and you answered it already. Uh, how <laughs> the, the people that you interviewed, I guess, how did you, how did you choose between people? Was it like skills or available, like time they had available, like how many years they had left to be on the program? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And so at the end of the whole project, we, we did a couple of things. So when we first started off with recruiting people, it was always through interviews. Um, 
and really there we so we we wouldn't um, turn people away because they were freshmen or sophomore and you know like you don't know a whole lot of a uh, lot of information when you're a freshman or a sophomore but that's why you do these projects is, is so that you can learn um, and freshman and sophomore level students are people with the most time I would say because junior level is definitely the hardest year and then uh, senior year you're trying to finish everything out and find and find a job um, so basically what we were really looking for in people is were they um, why did they want to do the project in the first place um, were they just looking for something and um, you know did it really not seem like the project was for them because well I'll, I'll say it this way when whoever you have on your team you you want them to be people who are motivated to work on something like this um, because those are the people who at the end of the day they're gonna sit in the lab and they're gonna write the code and they're gonna figure out what's going wrong when when you have to debug things um, they're gonna stay up late doing analyses to make sure that you can meet all of your deadlines uh, so I would say motivation is one of the most important things to look for in anyone that you want on, on your team if you're doing if you're going about interviews um, and then the second was also time commitments uh, because a lot of the people who so when we did interviews we would hire on like maybe six people on a software and then at the end of the semester you would have one person left and so you know you, you spend a it, that gets very difficult because you spend a lot of time at the beginning of the semester training these people trying to get them up to speed and then eventually you know a month later they drop off because their course load is way too heavy um, and it's going to happen with a lot of people um, but the people who really want to be there will stay uh, so that's that's one thing that you know is is good to look for is kind of like what what's the course load that people are taking and people are taking 19 credits like they're not going to they're probably not going to stay, um, for example. Um, but so, so we had did we did interviews and we were kind of looking for that. We were looking to see um, how what people had done in the past, or maybe they'd worked with with um, other people. Um, so, like students who tended to to do a lot of work by themselves, you know, they they're not very good at working in teams uh, and that's a little bit concerning when you know this is a very big like team building process um, but at the end of the day I would say the recruitment strategy we found to be the most effective was actually just saying hey we're making a CubeSat you know come on and help and um, because what we found with with interviews is that it actually scared some people off some people felt that they you know oh I'm gonna be interviewed I don't have anything to talk about because I haven't done a project you know before and they're not going to want to hire me um, and that's that's really not the case when we were saying interviews we just wanted to get to know people um, because yeah <laughs> we, we just want to yeah. know who we're working with um, but yeah so it scared some people off and another thing too is that interviews are a lot of work uh, it takes a lot of time to just talk to people and get to know them and then you have to like you know, send the emails out to vet people and it goes on for a couple of days um, and it's just it's it's a lot of work to just have a lot of those people kind of drop off at the end because they're a lot more dedicated to their coursework than they're going to be dedicated to this project um, so the most effective thing we found was just to say hey you know we have this project we really need people to do these things um, if you're interested come and join us and then give them things to do 
If they're new, give them some small things to do. And if they do them, they do them effectively. They keep coming back, they coming in and asking questions, then um, give, them, give them something more, give them more responsibility. Um, and two, with that, when it comes to onboarding them, we found that it was best to kind of make the onboarding process mostly, um, mostly on them, as opposed to us really sitting down and very detailed going through the project. Uh, you know, this is the background, this is how this works. Um, this is how our flight software is structured. Uh, we spent a lot of time doing that at the beginning and, you know, really like I would go through our PDR slides with people and, and go through all of, all of the slides with them. Uh, and we would have days where like our software team would sit down with the newbies and they would go through, you know, the whole architecture and everything. They would walk them through how to program an app uh, in, uh, in CFS. And it's a lot of work that's being taken away from your team to onboard these people who may not stay at the end of the day. And so we found that really making it up to them to show that they wanted to be here and to just keep continue to come back was the most effective way to allow the rest of the team to keep working on what they were working on and also uh, really figure out at the end of the day who, who are the people who are actually going to stay. So um, some people like doing interviews. Uh, they find that they they are, they are more effective. We we found the opposite. So that's, um, I guess with, with that I'll end with, you know, we tried both sides of, of the coin and um, we just found that doing interviews was a lot more inefficient than it was efficient. Okay, sure. Um, so then how many students would you say was in like the core team, the people who would spend late nights at the lab and then how many were kind of like helping out when they had time? Uh, let's see. With that, you know, it, it depends. Uh, it depends on what phase of the project you're working on and, and what all you're working on. So, um, in the beginning, I would say, you know, most, so in the beginning we started off with like, I think like 40 to 50 people. Uh, and this is when we were doing a lot of the analysis, a lot of the initial trade studies and everything. And so, um, with that, I would say most of the team was actually fairly involved. Um, okay. And we really only had, you know, in every semester we'd have a handful kind of drop off, but there was a, like a, a good core of, of like, of people who were still there. At the end of the development phase, we were really just doing software. So this was like really the last year of development was, was mostly software because we had done all of, we you know, we figured out all of the system interfaces, uh, all of the interface boards that we needed. So there wasn't a whole lot of electrical work to do. Um, you know, all of the ADCS simulations were, were done. Uh, and so it was mostly software. And so, and at that point, uh, and we kind of told everyone too, you know, the only thing that really needs to be worked on is just software. And if you're not, uh, if you aren't willing to jump in with, with software, that's totally fine. Um, we just don't have any other work that needs to be done at the moment. And so for the last year was really like a, uh, I'd say maybe like there were eight people on the software team really working on things. And then there were, uh, I would say like maybe, maybe five people uh, who were, you know, kind of mildly helping with software, mildly helping with other things. Um, so it was a lot smaller at, at the end when work got a lot more specifically concentrated. Sure.
Okay, so as a brief aside, I want to rephrase a few things that I mentioned here about the team structure and task distribution early on. So in the beginning, there were a lot of people working on Phoenix, but a majority of them are really only putting in about five hours a week or so. And that's with roughly, you know, we had about three to four people on each subsystem. Now, looking back now, I think we had a few too many people working on the project based on what we knew at the time. And we probably should have tried to get a better bearing on what we were doing so that we different roles had a little bit more substance. Don't get me wrong, you know, we had a lot of really great engineers who were very interested and very invested in the project, that came to meetings regularly, really tried to see how they could help. But because we had never done this before and we had no idea what we were doing, and we were really trying to just get a grasp of what the right direction was for all of these different subsystems, it didn't leave people with a whole lot to actually do. And it wasn't until we actually started working a lot more with hardware and really focusing on exactly how things needed to go together that the path started to make a lot more sense and we got a lot more confident with setting goals, understanding what our requirements really had to be, and delegating things out amongst people. I mean, you definitely don't want to rush your design along. You, know, you definitely want to talk to people and spend some time in the conceptual phase because bad conceptual design will also mess you up further down the road, right? But at the same time, the faster that you can get to actually prototyping something, the faster that your conceptual design will start to really make sense. And it will start to make sense to everybody. So I don't mention this at the end when I talk about how I would have improved things if I were to do Phoenix again, but subsystem and responsibility definition is definitely a very big area that I think I should have focused on a little bit more at the beginning, either by talking to other teams and just saying, hey, you know, this is what we were doing, what do you think? or essentially doing the same thing with other people at ASU or the industry, what have you. Now, with that being said, I think that one thing that would have helped Phoenix a lot in the beginning is just getting a better sense of what the exact responsibilities of each subsystem should have been at each phase of the project and how long certain things took people to do. As a PM, having a really good understanding of that helps you push things along, but in a way that's you know actually realistic, right? So the way that we delegated our subsystem responsibilities as well as our timeline for certain tasks is something that I'm putting together in my book, which will essentially describe the history of Phoenix and how it came together. And I will do a podcast episode on this as well once that section is written. I don't know when that will be, unfortunately, but I'm working on it. So that's all I'll say to this for now, and I will try to have more up on this soon. And um, so that when you said there were 40, 50 people doing the initial analysis, what was the timeline, I guess, between the professor approaching you, like the proposal being put in, then the development? Oh, okay. So, uh, let's see. I think we spent maybe like two months on the proposal itself. It was pretty rapid. Uh, and then we submitted that in November. We didn't hear back about it until April 2016. Uh, that's when we figured out we got the grant and and we were going to get funding to actually develop it. And we so we didn't do any work between November and April. We were kind of just waiting. Um, and then once we got the grant in April, we immediately sat down and kind of went through everything and um, reorganized our science to be a lot more specific instead of kind of this more uh, broader statement of just let's you know let's just study urban heat islands. <laughs> um, and so the summer was mostly spent with, I would say, defining, redefining the major mission requirements and, and refining the science objectives. So that was about three months of work there. Um, and then development itself between doing all of the initial analyses, 
to deciding, okay, we're going to buy all of our, um, all of our, our hardware. That was, let's see, it was about nine months. Yeah. Eight, eight to nine months. Um, and the, the biggest schedule, the biggest thing that really impacted our schedule there was, uh, power simulations because we wanted to make sure that, you know, before we went out and bought everything, all of the hardware that we had chosen was going to remain within the power budget that, that we'd allocated. Um, we were doing a trade study, specifically we were doing a trade study between do we want deployable solar panels or just body mounted solar panels? And can we get away with everything if we just use body mounted? Uh, because deployables were gonna be way too expensive. Um, and so refining that and making sure that that was, was good was uh, really the, the thing that, that took some of the longest amount of time because I mean, when you're doing your trade studies, you're contacting all of these vendors and trying to get CAD for them and uh, evaluating how good different designs are. Um, and so that that was a lot of time spent there with, with just analyzing, okay, what exactly is it that we can do? Um, and yeah, with, you know, given, given what's available as commercial off-the-shelf components, because we weren't going to actually develop any of the key hardware ourselves. So that was about nine months. And then uh, purchasing hardware was about four, let's see, March, say March to August, um, because it took us like a month just to get all of the vendors into the university, like, you know, financial yeah, yeah. processing <laughs> system. And then it takes them about two to three months to actually fabricate and test all of the hardware. Um, and then you've got a couple of other months for, for margin, especially, you know, when it comes to initiating more of these conversations of, yes, we would like to buy this and, um, yeah. figuring out options sheets and stuff. So that's going to take a, you know, some, like about, you know, four to five months of, of time, depending on how everything goes. Um, and so, yeah, w within that, the, the thing that really slows you down in terms of development time is that you can't really start testing anything or really developing software until you have hardware. Because uh, you can stare at yeah. data sheets all day long, but it's, you know, it's, there's so much that you're not going to understand just by looking at them. And you could find that, you know, the way that you understood how this worked is a little bit different uh, when, you, when you actually have to sit down and, and work with it. So, um, yeah, so, so there, there's a good chunk of time that you kind of have to figure out, okay, how do we best optimize uh, the schedule given that we don't have anything to really play with yet? Sure. Um, okay, next question. Um, in, the, in one of your episodes, I don't remember which um, podcast it was from, but you mentioned that uh, like when you, were, when you had either budget or timeline problems, you usually chose to reduce the scope of the project, like getting rid of the S-band comms. Um, did you have things like that? Was it included in the design from the beginning that there were things, like there were nice to have things that could be removed if you didn't have the time or the budget to work on them? No, actually, that was definitely something that we learned. That's a good question. That was something that we, we learned um, very quickly <laughs> uh, throughout the actual development phase when it came to, you know, when it came down to the wire of actually having to implement things. So um, when we were just doing a lot of the design work, we weren't considering, okay, yes, this is a nice to have, 
um, and this is absolutely absolutely required. We were trying to um, before before we we held our PDR and realized at the PDR that okay, you know what we've designed it's is really trying to optimize the science and if we want to optimize the science it's just going to take a lot more work and a lot more time uh than we initially realized and we, and we really want to have something that's going to be robust and and you know still do the science well but maybe it doesn't have everything that that we initially thought um so we were kind of just designing everything just to be you know be really optimal for a science return um and it wasn't until we actually started programming things and uh, you know our, our, our deadline started getting a lot closer to where we realized, okay, we have to cut this out because it's there's just no way that that we will have the time and or resources to um, uh, to actually properly include that. Um, and so some of those things are really just going to come with experience. You're not you may not know uh, from the start kind of what you can. Uh, or what's best to get rid of if, if time, um, but it's definitely a good exercise to do uh, when, when you start and, and figure out, you know, what at the minimum are, are the requirements that I need in order to be successful? Uh, what are the minimum components that I need in order to be successful? Uh, it's, that's, that's really going to help you along the way. Um, when we started, we really didn't have a very good understanding of requirements and requirements flow. Uh, and if we did, uh, and, and we had a very good understanding of, okay, what, you know, what are the absolute minimum goals that we need in order to, um, to study their Rainy Island effects? Like when we started, we didn't, when we ended, our, our mission objective was to take a single picture of Phoenix and downlink that to the ASU ground station. Uh, and then you could do a study of, you know, the, the heat, at least in Phoenix, with that one image. We didn't have that very specific mission requirement. We, it was very broad and we were just going, it was just, we'll study the urban heat island effect from space. <laughs> um, sure. And so if we had a better understanding of that when we started, then we probably would have designed things like that in, but we just, uh, we didn't. So that's, uh, that's a good question and it's definitely one of the things that I, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start the podcast was to kind of get some of those things out because you really don't realize that until you've actually had experience and have had to cut things out because you don't have time to do them. Yeah, sure. Um, how, how did you decide, you talked a bit before about uh, how you decided to do a lot of things, um, COTS, how did you decide what was what was best bought and what was best to develop um, by, for the students to develop? From the beginning, we kind of, we didn't want to develop anything ourselves um, because we wanted to make sure, basically we wanted the project to be reliable. Uh, we had the funding to buy all uh, COTS components. So we're like, you know, why not? Uh, yeah. the, you know, the, we, we want to have very reliable components to do the science very well. Um, and so we didn't want to screw things up by making them ourselves. Yeah. Um, we, we actually, yeah, and like I, I mentioned in the structures episode, we weren't even originally going to make the structure. We were going to buy one. And then we realized, oh, we'd have to make all of these, you know, very small modifications to it. And so we decided to make our own. Um, 
the things that we made aside from the structure were the interface boards. And when we started, we also didn't realize that we would even need interface boards. This was a, an idea that was brought up to us by uh, one of our mentors at, at JPL um, who, who mentioned, yeah, you know, you might want to incorporate interface boards to, you know, account for some of these incompatibilities between components or, you know, other features that you wish you would have had uh, in the heart, in, you know, the other main components, if you could have made them yourself. Since so we were like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> um, so then, then that's kind of how we, you know, we ended up making those things ourselves. Um, but yeah. Okay, sure. So like, I guess for the, the COTS analysis, you'd be looking at components in the data sheet and like how much power and heat and then like doing a jigsaw puzzle kind of thing to get all the things to match and where to place them and... Yeah, exactly. Um, I would say the other thing that's uh, good to examine too is, is interfaces, just to make sure that, you know, especially your, your OBC has all of the, you know, the right data interfaces and connections that you might possibly need. Uh, and if not, can you accommodate all of those very well in, on an interface board and still get this, you know, uh, computer that's been very reliably tested and flown from, you know, from uh, a CubeSat vendor. Uh, so that's that's one trade that you can do is, okay, do you want a, an OBC from a CubeSat vendor or do you want to make your own? Um, and depending on what your architecture is, sometimes it is possible to to just, you know, kind of put everything together and, and develop your own uh, system that way. Uh, one of the things we were considering doing was taking like a BeagleBone block and, you know, taking off all of the components that we didn't need on that because the, the BeagleBone Black is is open sourced. Um, and so you have access to all of the, the electrical files. Um, and there's, you know, there's a community of people who have worked with this before who can kind of help you put things together. And so you can, if you want to, develop your own kind of OBC that will um, support whatever you need it to. So that that's another option in terms of, um, uh, you know, your, your main processor and stuff. Sure. Um, if you can tell us what was your budget approximately, you mentioned that you're able to buy everything or not everything, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so NASA gave us $200,000 to develop the CubeSat at ASU and, but that allowed us to buy two of every component. So we did have our flight hardware and then we had an exact copy of the hardware. Um, that we used as flight spares. And there are some vendors out there who will give um, universities like discounts if, if they're buying okay, yeah. So we were able to take advantage of that. Uh, one of those, I think Clyde Space was the one that gave us discounts um, for, for our EM. Uh, so that, that, was, that was awesome. <laughs> um, and that allowed us to kind of remain within the, the budget as well. The, the final price of the spacecraft was about 115k, uh, once yep. you accounted for for everything, um, and then other places where our funding went was that you know we we really didn't have like a any equipment for developing a CubeSat uh, because this was ASU's very first one, and so we needed to buy ESD mats and you know other ESD wrist you know wrist straps and uh, protective gear. Um, things to actually, you know, a laminar flow bench to actually assemble the spacecraft. Um, and then all of the prototyping you do will also cost money as well. So that's also a big part of the budget. 
Okay, not a, not a huge part, but it it it's something to consider. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I asked you before. I had a follow-on question that I forgot to ask. the The timeline. Were you given a timeline that you had to meet, like with regards to building the spacecraft? Yeah. So um, when we were given the grant, we were initially going to so so. Basically, when we got the grant, the grant said, okay, you know, we're, you will have $200,000 of funding and, uh, you know, the projected timeline, or when we wrote the proposal, we had to demonstrate that, you know, we thought this was something we could get done in two years. Um, so when we received the funding, it was, okay, you know, you have, two, you have 200, 200 grand to develop everything and then we expect the QSAT to be delivered in two years, or at least that's the goal. Um, and it turns out that the two years wasn't a super hard deadline um, because really what what NASA wanted, really NASA just wanted to give students the experience of doing this and uh, not necessarily hold them to a very strict deadline. Um, and so basically what happened was um, with this grant, we were automatically given a, uh, we were automatically given an opportunity to be launched to the ISS through NASA's CubeSat launch initiative and so it was just a matter of it eventually it came down to a matter of us telling the CSLI um, this is when we expect to be ready uh, it didn't end up being two years after we received the funding but this is when we expect to be ready and when you tell the CSLI you know we're going to be ready to develop we're sorry <laughs> we are going to be ready to deliver this to you you know August of 2019 then that's when you're held accountable to that date. Um, we we ended up slipping uh, with with our launch. So the the first date that we told them was September of 2018, and so we were going we were supposed to deliver then, and hand it off and have it launch. Um, but our software needed a lot more work in order to uh, actually be ready. And so at our CDR we proposed. You know, we're, we're really not ready to deliver. Um, we need an extra year to kind of get everything squared off and do flight integration and, and everything. And they actually did allow us to move our launch date. But the second date that we told them, you know, yes, we're going to be ready to deliver this to you by this date that actually that had to be, you know, the end all be yeah. all date or else uh, they told us, you know, we don't know when you'll launch and you may never launch. Um, and so, you know, they they wanted to give us the opportunity, but they also wanted to, to make sure that we were held accountable to the deadline that we had set. Uh, and when you do yeah. things like bump your launch, it does, you know, it, it, someone has to do the paperwork and it does cost money because you're breaking a contract when you do that. Um, and so, you know, lucky for us, we were very, we were very fortunate that NASA covered a lot of that for us. Um, we didn't have to you know, deal with any of the logistics of breaking the contract or anything. Um, but it's definitely not something that you want to do. Um, but, you know, they see that you're working hard and you're really trying to get there, then yeah, that's a conversation you can have, though it's not ideal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so did you, did you have to go through, did you have to interface well, I guess NASA was like your third party launch organizer then, weren't they? Did you have to talk with, like, I guess you got launched from Nanorak's thing then? Did you have to talk with Nanorak's at all or NASA took care of all that? Yeah, yeah, we did work, we worked with both. So 
So because uh, NASA gave us this grant, um, we were, let's see, they were kind of like our overhead management. They didn't have a very strong hand in the project and what actually we were doing. So like all of our development was very much just on us and, and just us chipping away at things. And then once we got closer to our actual delivery date, then um, we started talking with NanoRacks and, we, and there's paperwork that you'll have to file, make sure that, you know, NASA under, um, make sure that all of your material, well, materials, materials are compatible, uh, you know, with, uh, without gassing standards and whatnot, um, and that you're meeting all of the NanoRex requirements to be integrated into their deployer. So that way, you, you know, you can be safely taken to the ISS and then deployed from there. So NanoRex will get at least fairly involved with you and making sure that you're meeting all of their requirements as you get a lot closer to delivery. Um, so NASA was kind of our, our overhead management and just kind of, you know, seeing where we were with the project, seeing if we needed help. So when it came time for things like, like CDR and such, uh, they would help get people to support it and give us feedback. Um, and uh, in particular, the CubeSat launch initiative got a lot more involved when um, the CubeSat initiative and NASA's launch services program uh, get a lot more involved when it comes time to actually coordinate which launch vehicle you're going to be on, uh, as well as, you know, getting everything squared away for you actually to be launched. Um, you know, they'll make sure that you're up to date with all of your licensing and that if you have any questions regarding licensing, they can answer it for you. So, uh, you know, the FCC tends to be um, one that is kind of a pain in the butt to to, to get through and, and does take time. It's definitely not something that is, it, or it is something that's very good to, you know, start as, as early as possible. Um, so that's kind of where NASA gets a lot more involved. It's mostly with the logistics of just getting you ready for launch and then um, getting you, you will physically deliver the spacecraft to the NanoRax facility in Houston and then NanoRax will take it over from there. But yeah. Okay, cool. Um, did you guys have much interaction with other student teams? Because uh, in, in my bachelor degree, I was quite involved with the Formula SAE, like the motorsport teams. Uh, and so, yeah, like there are a few in my city and, you know, we're always helping each other out. And like there's online forums and things like that where people discuss all sorts of things. Was there anything like that you found for the CubeSat teams? Yeah. Yeah. Uh so with with phoenix we actually well we didn't reach out to a whole lot of cubesat teams like i i don't know i there are very few cubesat teams that i you know i i actually met during my undergrad when we were working on phoenix um the one we were closest with was embry riddle's uh facility up in prescott arizona because they you know that's what is that like three two and a half to three hours away um so and uh we were both partnered with the with our, our um, the spacecraft organization so we would meet at the conferences and, and um, became very good friends with them um, so that was someone we were we were closest with and we coordinated with them to do things like uh, our first vibe test was done in Emory Riddle um, because they had uh, a vibe table and we didn't have one at, at ASU um, they also had a TVAC facility that we could use uh, as well and so we were going to coordinate with them to do TVAC even though we didn't actually get there um, because we wanted more time for software development. Um, so working with, with CubeSet teams is, 
it, it's it's one of the things that that I, I recommend to, to everyone I talk to now because it's it's so useful to just talk to people who have done this before. Um, I would say we didn't end up reaching out to a lot of people. I think just because you know our our mentors were fairly involved um, at ASU, and so we kind of just we had you know, at, at the end of the day, you're, you're the ones who are, are solving a lot of your technical problems. Everything was just kind of like done in house. Um, but we were able to meet a few other people at the, uh, at the CubeSat, uh, the Cube, the CubeSat conference that's happens the, in Utah. The, the small set conference. Small set conference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was getting that mixed up with like with the Cal Poly, uh, conference for, for some reason. Um, yeah, so SmallSat is a great way to meet people um, who have worked on CubeSats, and that's useful for, you know, especially if you talk to people who have worked with similar hardware as you before, because they can help you, uh, you know, debug issues or, or talk to you about, um, you know, other things that they had to do to kind of uh, get their system together. Um, but really, when it comes down, when it came down to a lot of technical questions, we worked the the people we worked with the most were actually the vendors and then just asking their technical support questions um, because the customer support for all of uh, all of our vendors is, you know, it's, they're, they're very awesome. <laughs> um, I, I, I enjoy working with all of our vendors. Uh, and that's, yeah, <laughs> that's not just to be like a, a plug for, for um, yeah, sure. all of the vendors we worked with, but they, they you know, they, they really do want to help you and they're very efficient with answering your questions. Um, so that's how we really solved a lot of kind of our, our technical problems was, was, was mostly just working with the vendors themselves. And that's all for today's episode of The Art of Space Engineering. If you're interested in learning more about the team structure that we used on Phoenix and how we work together, as well as a few things that I would do differently if I were to start Phoenix all over again from scratch, then check out part two of this episode. Stay tuned for more conversations on space mission engineering over the coming weeks, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah. <laughs>